Good morning. My name is Maddie. I just graduated from Dunlap High School, and I'm really excited to be attending Hope College in the fall. There I plan to study English and creative writing. If any of you have ever been hiking in the mountains, then you know that it is not an easy task. There are bears, steep, heart-pounding trails, dizzying drop-offs, sometimes huge wet boulders to scramble over, and always, always my feet hurt. Over my years of hiking, I have thrown up, rolled my ankle, been excessively lightheaded due to either heat or altitude, almost passed out, and once I nearly fell off a small cliff. I personally look back on these experiences as great adventures, but many people would look at this description of hiking mountains and say, why go to so much trouble to climb a bunch of giant rocks? Uh, I'll show you why. I took this picture in... Oh, I took this picture in Glacier National Park on a trail that was 11 miles round trip, nearly all uphill on a skinny trail dug into the side of a mountain. But as you can see, this view was breathtaking, and it wasn't even the best part. Grinnell Glacier floats upon water like clouds drifting across the sky. Looking down into the water was like looking up at the summer sky, everything perfectly mirrored. And when I reached down to touch the freezing lake, I felt that I was, in a way, no longer connected to the earth. I was flying above the lands, fingers grazing the deep blue atmosphere. This kind of awe and wonder is only a fragment of what Peter, James, and John felt when they summited a mountain. This mountain is what many scholars think to be the mountain most likely to have hosted the transfiguration of Jesus. As I, read through this, as I read through this passage, I would like you to envision as you're reading what is happening, as though you were reading it like picturing a scene in a novel. Today we will be exploring Matthew 17, 1 through 8, otherwise known as the Transfiguration account. Please turn with me to Matthew 17 as we prepare to read the Word of God. And let's pray. Heavenly Father, please bless the reading of this word and allow us to understand the truth that is being conveyed from this text and bring it with us into our everyday lives. Amen. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John, his brother, and led them, led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. And behold, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with him. And Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good that we are here. If you wish, I will make three tents here, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. He was still speaking when, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my beloved son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell on their faces and were terrified. But Jesus came and touched them, saying, Rise and have no fear. And when they lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. So today to um, look through the text, we are going to be first exploring the story, encountering God's bigness, and experiencing God's nearness, all of which are in this passage. So first let's explore what is happening. So Jesus takes three of his disciples and they go on a long hike to the peak of a mountain. When they summit, something happens to Jesus. The Greek term for what happens is metamorpho, which means to transfigure or change in form. 
And in saying that Jesus was transfigured before them is to say that he physically changed specifically for his disciples. He's explicitly showing them something here. As Jesus shines in glory, two other figures appear beside him, Moses and Elijah, two significant prophets from the Old Testament. This is when Peter does what Peter is best known for, speaking before thinking. He stumbles up to these three important figures and asks to make them tense, as if they were planning on staying the night for a camp out. Peter's heart was in the right place, as it often is. He wanted to serve Moses, Elijah, and Jesus and stay on the mountain with them, basking in their glory, yet constantly keeping the truth of their existence away from the others below. Peter has hardly uttered these words when the most awe-inspiring, breath-snatching, heart-stopping person arrives, God himself. God in his glory, hidden in a shining cloud, descends upon the summit. Imagine how incredible that must have been. Imagine that the king and creator of the entire universe, from the tiny ants to the massive stars, stars that are bigger than our own solar system, has appeared and his presence is all around you. And then he speaks, proclaiming Jesus as his son. Who really wouldn't fall over at the sound of his voice? I probably would black out and miss the whole thing. Peter and the others topple down to to the ground in supplication, trembling in reverence and terror. Jesus comes over to them, comforts them, touching them each gently and saying, get up, don't be afraid. Isn't it great that we don't need to be terrified of the biggest king there ever was? It's great and quite relieving that such a king is Jesus who loves us. Now let's examine God's bigness. When the disciples saw Jesus on that mountain, and they see his face and clothes shine like a star, it wasn't just the sun coincidentally reflecting off his face and making him look otherworldly. It was Jesus' appearance being actually transformed so that he no longer seemed merely human. To show the disciples that he is not simply human, he's way more than that. He is something much greater and much more incomprehensible. Jesus is showing the disciples his true nature before he was born, in eternity past, when he was living in complete harmony with God and the Spirit. This glorious sight is meant to visually prove to his disciples that he is indeed the Messiah, the actual Son of God. Peter has already proclaimed Jesus as the Messiah up to this point, and he's the first one to do so. But this time, Jesus is not waiting for anyone to declare this through faith. He wants the disciples to see and believe. This is uncommon to us, which is part of the reason why the story is known for triggering our imagination and feelings of wonder. In our day and age, Jesus doesn't typically and explicitly reveal himself in the same way that he did to the disciples. Many of the times, you have to have an open heart or an awareness that God, Jesus, and the Holy Spirit are present. And then God may show you something of his character. This is an awareness that God gives us himself. I have an example of when God gave me a taste of his magnificent and overwhelming character. I was at the Stronghold Retreat, which is basically a castle down in southern Illinois, and Joss was giving a lesson, and she had darkened the room and lit a candle in the center of the floor. All was darkness except for that candle, and all her eyes were trained on that single flame. There she told the beginning of the creation story. She explained that before anything was made, The Holy Trinity was living in perfect harmony. It was a perfect display of friendship and community. I closed my eyes, and I pictured a great swirling light. While my imagination surely was nowhere near the actual image of the Trinity, it was probably pretty comical if you'd see it on a TV screen or something. 
I was filled with the divine, magnificent, overpowering presence of God. Like Peter, James, and John, I was able to get a taste of the majesty of Jesus just by sitting in this room. But you don't always need a dark room and a Bible to experience God's bigness. Examples of God's power are, are all around us. <clears throat> Psalm 139, 13 through 15 says, You knit me in my mother's womb. I was woven together in the depths of the earth. Paul, in the book of Romans, reiterates this idea. Romans 1.20 says, For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made. Through his works, God creates life. He meticulously created every being on this earth, assigning each one a purpose. The same being who created the blobfish created the lion. The same God who created the rainbow created the hurricane. The immense amount of detail and diversity that he puts into everything in our reality just fills me with awe and a little bit of fear. Someone who can control nature has in their hands the weapons of the most ultimate destruction. With a blink, he could activate the Yellowstone supervolcano and bury this country in ash. He could send in another asteroid and encore the distinction of the dinosaurs, the extinction of dinosaurs, but with us as the dominant species. I think you can understand why the disciples fell on their faces when God appeared and started to speak. But of course, he doesn't do all those things because violence isn't his primary characteristic. As C.S. Lewis shows in his Narnia Chronicles, God isn't tame, but he is good. The wildness of God isn't something we think about too often. I have noticed that we tend to do a lot more complaining about God's creation than appreciating it. I mean, it's allergy season, so it's kind of obvious we're not going to be completely comfortable. Um, and, I mean, I do also love to complain about how the Midwest, especially in the spring, can never seem to decide what season it's in or how disgusting my track season was because of all the rain and wind. But I have found myself in a better, I might have found myself in a better mood if I had thought, oh, the rain is a blessing that'll like, make the flowers bloom and bring color into our world. Every season has its own special purpose. And I could never really imagine myself being that tirelessly optimistic, but... I do think that it is important to sometimes take a fresh look at the world around you and contemplate how God has created it. Like, when it's similar to when you tour an artist's collection of masterpieces. Maybe not every painting is your favorite, but each one is used creating the same genius, masterful hand, and just sometimes knowing that is enough to love what you see. Now, let's see how we experience God's nearness. When the disciples experienced God coming down on a cloud, I really don't think love, compassion, and nearness was on their mind when they fell to their faces in fear. That's why Jesus came to them and touched them each, consolingly, saying, don't be afraid. This simple gesture is a huge window into the mystery of God's nature. Many kings want their people to fear them so that they follow orders, but that is not the kind of fear God wants his children to feel. In touching his friends, Jesus is showing that he wants to have a close friendship and relationship with each of his disciples, and that includes us now. God may seem that because of his power, like someone who's unreachable or too kingly to waste time with the mishaps and annoyances of humans, but it's simply not true. That is not who God is at all. I feel God's nearness quite a bit when I pray, especially when I pray conversationally. Sometimes I just tell God about my day or 
about what I'm struggling with, and I feel that he cares about those things, even though he's seen similar things a million times over. I'm sure that many of you have prayed to God asking for help on a test or something difficult that's coming up. It doesn't matter if God has been asked, help me on this test five times or five million times. He never gets bored or goes on vacation or thinks that he has more important things to do. Humans are the center of his focus by his choice. The psalmist in Psalm 133 extols the Lord, saying, How precious to me are your thoughts, God. How vast the sum of them. Were I to count them, they would outnumber the grains of sand. Every one of us are on God's mind all the time. It's a great mystery how he can manage this, but it's true that he's constantly thinking about us, caring for us, no matter who you are or how interesting you think your life is. Have you ever had doubts about how much God cares about you or about this world in general? Has that ever kept you from seeking him out? I think sometimes it's hard to remember that God is one of the most accessible and dependable friends because we can't see him like any other friend we would have. The fact is, he's the only thing in your life that is constant. He's your best friend who will follow you from the nursery to beyond. In fact, for all his bigness, he is closer than the air you breathe. He says in Deuteronomy 31, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Just like God's majesty can be hard to appreciate, so can God's closeness be difficult to understand. You've all pretty much found out by now that I really like the outdoors. Well, I have another nature example for you. Just this past Sunday, I was on a trail by this church, and I sat down by that tiny little pond that's on the trail by the baseball field. The pond was nestled in its own little cloister, flanked by trees and flourishing undergrowth. For a while, I sat there and watched the tadpoles swimming around and munching on the bugs that floated in the water. I was focused solely just on what was happening there. My mind was not away thinking about the job I might need to get in summer or anything. I was just focused on what was happening, the nature that was going on. And I was so at peace at that moment and away from any distractions. And in that simple little square of nature, I felt that God was close by, that he put as much effort into making that little pond as he did forming the huge mountains of Glacier National Park. Sometimes we're tempted to make God only fit our expectations and put him in a kind of box of our ideas about him. We want God sometimes to be big and powerful, but we assume that it means he's far away and doesn't pay attention to our little tasks and our everyday lives. Or we assume that God is casual and like our little buddy that follows us everywhere, near us but not altogether powerful and able to be active in the world. The challenges for all Christians to let God be both big, powerful, near, and good at the same time at every, at every part of the day. God's people got this wrong throughout history. In Jeremiah, God reminds his people that he is not just their own personal God, but he's the God of everyone, all people over the world. Jeremiah 20, 23 through 24 says, Am I only a God nearby? Am I not a God far away? Who can hide in secret places so that I cannot see them? Do not I fill the heavens and earth? God is always both. Don't nitpick one or the other, depending on your circumstance. Because really, if you only look at one side of God's nature, then you're just getting him wrong. Both sides of God come into play in every circumstance. Because he does not change. Every aspect of him influences his actions and his words. Remember what God says in Matthew 17? This is my son whom I love. 
With him, I am well pleased. Listen to him. And then Jesus comes and touches his disciples, telling them not to be afraid. There are two messages for us presented in these few sentences. The first one, God is beyond our comprehension of power. His glory is so great that he shines like a star, and we are meant to obey him, to listen to him. The second message occurs when Jesus lovingly touches his friends and tells them to stand up and not be frightened. Jesus shows us that in the midst of his glory, he is still our ever-present friend who knows us and loves us. I said that earlier, the purpose of Jesus' transfiguration was to prove that he really was the Son of God. And God sent his Son on a mission to rescue those who belong to him. As Paul says in Romans 8, 31-32, If God is for us, then who can be against us? He who did not spare his own Son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all these things? In this part of the gospel story, Jesus has been telling his friends that because he is the Messiah, he's going to die a gruesome death. The disciples weren't able to understand this, but us, with the full story of his death and resurrection, can look back at the transfiguration and be reminded of his forthcoming sacrifice. On the mount, we see Jesus cloaked in splendor, and yet we know that soon he will be dying a criminal's death. And so why would someone of such majesty and power allow himself to be shamed as though he were nothing but a lowlife? It's because he wants to be close to us. God is not satisfied with just ruling over his creation. He wants to be personally involved in the lives of each of his followers. And the only way for us to be that close to him is if he dies for our sins, breaking the boundary that separates us sinners from the Holy One. If Jesus wants his relationship with us to be like a friendship, then, like all friendships, we must play our part as well, which can be harder than it sounds. The noise of the world gets in our ears and distracts us from the beauty of Christ and his presence, the peace he offers us, and the knowledge of the best way of life. But the more we get to know Jesus, the more his presence will block out that distraction, and we will feel that our lives are more influenced by him. But while our lives are constantly changing, getting better, getting worse, getting worse and getting better, or just leveling out to a weekly tedium, God is the same. He is always accessible as a friend and extremely powerful, so trustworthy that you can place your life in his hands and be sure that he will take care of you. This is my prayer for our church, that we would encounter God's bigness and experience his nearness and remember that he thought of you when he was on the cross. Let's bow our heads in prayer. Heavenly Father, let us be moved by what we heard today. Help us to understand your intricate, magnificent, loving nature, and know that both sides, the big and the close, are constant in every aspect of our lives. Help us to remember what has been revealed about your character, and to add it to our ever-growing understanding of who you are. And when we forget, remind us that we can turn to you, knowing that because of your awesome power and loving hand, we can trust you all our lives. Thank you for being a loving, merciful, powerful, and magnificent Father. Amen.